0: Podcast. Every fortnight, we publish a talk from Eugene Halliday's collected works. These talks were recorded in Manchester and Liverpool, commencing in the late 1950s up until his death in 1987. This is episode 37, A B C of Relations. And observe that this is the head of the alphabet three-vowel form, and therefore signifies what is absolute. You can say A equals absolute. And absolute means that which is when all else is sold away. absolved, solved sold, away. So that a thing is absolute when it is pure, when there is nothing alien with it. We can say, then, that the term absolute should be used for the ultimate source of all things, because that alone is truly absolute. If we take the paper as our symbol again, and we say, let the paper represent the sentient power, the infinite sentient power, the behaviour (coughs) patterns of which constitute the world we see, we can say that this paper remains itself even when it is waving or as we fold it up. No matter what we do with it, it, it remains paper. If this paper is made to represent the absolute sentient substance, we can say that it remains itself absolutely. That is, there is nothing other than it And all the rolling up of the paper, or the folding of the paper, the creasing of the paper, the twisting of the paper, the waving of the paper, the vibrating of the paper, does not alter for a moment the fact that it is paper that is doing all these things. In the same sense, the ultimate source of all things whatever is remaining exactly what it is from all eternity. No matter what happens in the way of actualization of power, power remains essentially itself. And therefore, we say it is absolute. We can solve away the whole of creation, remove all the forms, and that which has caused all these forms remains what it is, the ultimate cause. And with all washed away, therefore, we use the term Absolute for it, and we can use the letter A to symbolize this. Now, our letter A in the English form is like two inclined lines leaning on each other, tied together with a ligature. And this itself symbolizes something of the nature of the Absolute. The Absolute is such that when there is an inclination within it, and the ligature then you have a closure creation occurs by the inclination of two aspects of the absolute if we like to represent it in another way we can say let there be a contraction onto a center and let the center react back onto the contracting force this again would be another way of representing the letter a the movement onto a center, the reaction from the center. The center would mark the focal point of any given zone of attention, and the perimeter would mark its limit of extension. The letter A, then, can be symbolized in three lines as we do it, two diagonal ones leaning on each other and a horizontal ligature. And it can symbolize the threefold nature of the absolute the absolute is a field of sentient power and this part leans on itself and thus apparently gives rise to a dualism and yet underneath is the ligature of a continuum of power so in the same way when we write saturn in the center of a circle and jupiter on the perimeter. We are symbolizing a force pressing onto the center, and a force going away from the center. And the continuous balance of these across the middle, which we represent by Mercury, gives us again a triangle, Saturn, Jupiter, and Mercury. The same triangle can be seen in the letter A. The two forces leaning on each other, in this case, are the Jupiter force and the Saturn force, which presuppose each other, and the mercury is the linking force between the two. We can say then that the absolute, because it is the source of all that is, must contain within itself such functions that can appear as polarized forces, can appear as forces in self-opposition. But we observe straight away that as soon as we get these forces in opposition, they give rise to a closed zone. In the case of the letter A, it is the triangle. In the case of the opposition, where we put Saturn at the center of the circle, Jupiter on the perimeter, we are closing a zone by the continuous rotation of the force to the center, from the center, to the center, from the center. This generates a sphere of V. And this closure is represented in the letter B. And we'll draw a line, and the line we have drawn to separate A from B, we will call the line demarking the finite from the infinite. The absolute is infinite, and below the level of the infinite is the finite. We can say that B, then, equals the relative and closure of finite. The absolute is infinite. We've drawn a straight line between A and B, but if you like to imagine this line continuing a long way and bending round quietly until it meets itself, it is really a circle. And then we can draw another diagram showing the closure of the circle. We will write letter B inside the circle and A outside the circle. The A is infinite, the B is finite. If we understand this diagram properly, we can read philosophy with some degree of profit. If we don't understand this division, we don't understand the basic propositions behind philosophy at all. Whenever we talk about being, we are talking about closure. When we talk about non-being, we are talking about the absolute. Being means being closed. Being is a verb, a progressive form of a verb, the verb to be, and it implies a boundary. B for boundary, B for good, B for ball, and so on. It all implies a closure. So, B is the realm of all relative closed finites. A is the non realm of the absolute infinite. And the absolute infinite, we have to postulate two aspects, sentience and power. We have to postulate these from the beginning, because if we don't, we can never introduce these again, at any point. From the power aspect, power equals force equals cause, equals universe of forms. Power behaving produces form. These forms produced would never be known to us unless there was sentiency in the power. If we hadn't got sentiency in our bodies, in the power which has murderized itself as body, we wouldn't know that we were bodies. Sentience is here with us in the body. And if we, with abstract thought, pretend that there is a non sentient, a non feeling matter, as soon as we have pretended it, we have committed a an error, because in fact we are pretending there is one, and we are sentient beings. A non-sentient being could pretend nothing. We, in pretending that sentience does not exist, prove it to exist, because only by our sentience can we postulate it not to exist at all. So our proof of the sentience of all things consists in this. If sentience is not inserted into the absolute in the first place, there is no point at which we can introduce it into a materialistic evolutionary analysis. Suppose we imagine for the moment that there are various bound particles, core material particles. Shade them in, little circles, shade them in to signify the opacity of matter. Now, <clears throat> if we define each particle as non sentient that is it's having no sense. Then if we put two no-senses together, we don't get any sense out of it. If we put three no-senses together, we still get no sense. If we put a million no-senses together, we get no sense. Now the materialist evolutionists have pretended that we can take a number of material particles and by simply increasing the number of it, we can cause sentience to appear out of non-sentience simply by multiplying the entities that have no sense. And this is manifestly illogical. Because they're aware that mere multiplicity will not confer sense upon nonsense, then they have introduced another concept to try to fool us into accepting the hypothesis. This is the idea of pattern. They say, although number alone wouldn't do it, because if we imagine an infinity of non-sentient points, An infinite number infinitely large beyond our grasp making them large does not add sense to them and therefore the simple increase by number of nonsense particles does not produce sense so they say let us now begin to arrange these particles in a certain way and then declare that the relation between them can produce sentience. The non sentient gives rise to sentience by patterning the parts. And this is what they say when they pretend that the molecules constituting a human brain, by their peculiar arrangement, give rise to sentience. Now, if any single molecule in the brain is non-sentient, then that one can never generate sentience from itself. And if we take a few million million of these things and put them all together and pattern them in the form we call the human brain, if there is no sense in all the constituent elements, then there is no sense in the brain. So we can never give rise to the concept of sentience in a material universe if we start with a statement that the material particles, the atoms or subatomic particles, are non sentient We can never give rise sentience from it. There is no point on which we can insert sentience into the material world if it has been excluded from the beginning. Now the fact that we are sentient shows that it is here now. But it cannot be introduced unless it's at the head of it. It is here now and therefore it has been introduced. Therefore it must be in the Absolute itself. The Absolute must be stated to be sentient power because from the Absolute has appeared power, forces, bodies, and so on, as modalities of power, and sentience, that is awareness of these things. The awareness must be in the Absolute, otherwise, it can never appear later. So, when we see the letter A, we should meditate on this fact. If we were doing mantra yoga, we would take the letter A or R. The three vowels uttered by the babies when they're first born. And well, they would say, this signifies the power absolute prior to creation, prior to binding. When we come to bind, we use the letter B to signify it. We find a very early form of it is simply a circle. Then we find another form of it is squared off. Another form of it is parted. Our form of it is a sort of cursed one made out of a square one with two rooms. If we look at the Hebrew letter for it, we draw a baseline to represent the ground and we draw a curved line nearly a right angle with the curve on the change of direction. And then we are looking at a set side elevation, if you like, of what in effect is a tent. The baseline here is the ground The vertical and the roof are a continuous line because they are made of canvas. This is a tent, and the wind is blowing this way, and the owner of this tent is sitting inside the tent, so that the letter B, as written in the Hebrew, is really a drawing of a tent, which is still a dwelling. It's still a place where the thing is sheltered from infinity, from the outside world. Now, as soon as we finite at all, we have caused relative curvature. To draw a circle is to include, let's close in, and exclude, let's close out. The include part means close, and we have in an x. We say that when a circle is drawn, it includes a finite, excludes the infinite. So every circle drawn brings to be, that is to bind, to be means to bind, to circumscribe, brings to be a finite closed zone, and excludes infinity. Now from this we can see the meaning of the statements that egotism is a bad thing, because egotism is identification with a finite zone and it automatically excludes the infinite resources of infinite power. If we were to take the Freudian definition of the ego complex, we would say that it is simply a group of ideas derived from education and recorded in our brain in such a way that when we try to act, the nervous impulses of the act always go through this group of ideas for the ego-complex. And this ego-complex, according to the mode of its filing, or training, or requirement, modifies whatever you try to do on the way out. So that when you are being egotistic, you have a system of ideas to do with your individuality. They are the product of what your parents have said to you and what your educators have said to you, and your reaction to these things. And these ideas together constitute the idea that you are a separate individual. As a separate individual, you are closed in and you have closed out, excluded the infinite, centered power of the absolute. Now, all religion has to do with a method of wiping out B and reasserting A. The statement is made that from A to B there is a form. And we know that the word fall is the same as the word pole, PA double, sound shift F to P. This pole is a covering. which is this circular line. This is a pole. The circulating forces round the sphere that create a shielding shell over the finite event. And the fall is always from the absolute into the relative. It is always from the infinite into the finite. When you act purely, that is, without adulteration, without in any sense doing a thing for a reason other than itself, when an act is done purely for this act alone and not for any other, when it is done as an end in itself and not a means to something else, then the act is called absolute. And it is said in this sense that man can act absolutely. That is to say, he can do an act simply because that act is that act and not another Some people walk when they want to go somewhere. That is walking as a means. That's impure. That's walking as a means. Walking not to walk, but walking to get somewhere. And if you go walking for walking, like a good Zen exponent would do, you would walk simply because the function of walking is doing something. In itself. And the psyche is doing the walking with it. He is identified with the walking, and the walking psyche is its own end. It is not trying to get somewhere for made to be. By means of walking, it is simply walking. In the same way that if you cry, like the old holy man in Sarathustra, if you cry, you may be crying as a means to get your own way. You may be crying in order to express some particular sorrow. If you do, this is a means. And it isn't pure, it's not absolute. But if you cry, and the crying is simply crying, and not for something other than crying, then it's absolute. It is absolved from contagion by other things. If you laugh likewise when you do so, providing you're not doing it for any reason, beyond itself, reducing it to a means, The act is absolute, And to act in this way is called absolute action. Now, absolute action is the same thing that is referred to in Zen philosophy as immediacy. It is not mediated. You have no reason for it. You simply do it. It is not a mechanical reaction to an external stimulus. It springs out of the centre of your own awareness, but it has no rationale preceding it and guiding it. It simply springs into existence from itself. If we compare here two different philosophies, the Zen philosophy of Buddhist Japan, with the Hasidic philosophy of the Jews, we find them very, very similar, and yet different in a very special way. All the oriental philosophies with the exception of the Jewish philosophers, have said that the time process itself is transitory, and therefore to be got rid of. They have said that time is something to transcend, to get over and forget about it. They have said that there is a a non-time level called nirvana, and this is the aim, getting to nirvana. Now we could show, given the appropriate length of time, that this has been misconceived, not by the founders, but by the disciples of those founders, who have failed to appreciate the precise nature of this eternal habitation. But while Zen, as a Buddhist religion, is biased into immediacy of the non-temporal order, the Hasidic idea is different. It looks slightly different, But it's really absolutely different in this sense. Time in Jewish thought is eternity expressing itself here in a now. And this now is moving. We've said before that we cannot assert that the absolute is static, because the concept of the static is derived from finite forces in opposition. Only where there are finite forces opposing each other and blocking each other's activity can we use the word static from the base star. When we stand and fasten it and tie it down and lock it up, that is static. But that can only refer to a finite. The infinite, therefore, which cannot be opposed in this way and tied down, cannot be static. Therefore, we say that the Absolute is absolutely dynamic. It is power and it is pure motion. But that motion is all there is absolutely. And therefore, whatever appears in what we call the time process, serially, can only be aspects of eternality, viewed from within it through closed zones, the closure of those zones itself being a function of the movement. Of the absolute. It is the movement of the absolute we have represented so often in the rippling of the paper and the positing in the ripples of an infinite pattern of overlapping circle. And the shifting of super stress as the paper waves means that one circle is animated, then lapses, the next circle is animated, lapses, the next is animated, and lapses. There is an apparent serialization. A presentation of a circle when in fact what we know is that an infinity of such zones are continuously activated and yet it appears that if we identify with one of these zones and then make an observation from it to another one it will always give rise to the idea of serial presentation in other words we only get the temporal serial world by first identifying with a finite, closed system. If you don't identify with your gross physical body, your time sense begins to go away. You know this because when you stop identification with your physical body at night, when you go to bed, your time awareness lapses. So if it happens that when you go to sleep, it is dark, and when you wake up, suddenly, because of a strange noise, it is still dark, you don't know what time it is. There's no sense of time there unless you identify with a given finite physical observation point. Now, I have seen about it the same, in effect. Every circle that appears as a finite in the time process is an eternal there presented, as if it were a temporal. Now, as it happens to be an eternal, it is an absolutely valid and valuable experience in time. Supposing you turn around and you shake hands with each other. That's a temporal act. But if you do it, and at the moment of making the contact hand to hand, you say, This is contact. This is participation in absolute relation of the order signified by the two inclining lines in the letter A. Suddenly, instead of being merely a temporal act, contact is an eternal act appearing in the now. And this is the Hasid attitude towards it, as opposed to the Orientalist attitude of the Buddhist, generally, and various other religions, like Hinduism. The Hasid, being Jewish, is strongly individuated. He says, each one of those circles in eternity is as valid as all the others, and is peculiarly unique in that it is the only centre from which the kind of observation can be made that it makes. So it doesn't matter how many others there are, it doesn't matter if a given zone is a congenital idiot. From the point where that congenital idiot is situated, it and it alone can make that observation. That observation is absolutely valid because it is made from that center. And that center is an absolute center when it stands from its own central impulse and rejects interference from other centers. When interference comes, it is committed adultery with the surrounding circles. When it acts from its own centre, there is no adultery, and its action is absolute. So that even a congenital idiot, looking at the world, if we could suddenly see through his eyes, we would see a world perfectly valid for him, and a world which is valid for us seen through his eyes. We will have to see that his world is as good as ours. And if we can once realise this fact that inside each individual there is a centre of absolute validity, because this individual appearing in the time process is only a supersession on an eternal individuating form, this is a terribly important difference. Because in the one case, the general orientalist attitude, we tend to devalue the time process and devalue the individual consciousness and try to get rid of it. Whereas in the other case, represented generally by Jewish thought, and specifically in the Hasidic thought, that eternity is pushing itself and generating a time process and appearing at any given moment of time in a peculiarly individuated way. But the way it is individuating is an eternal fact here presenting itself, so that everybody then feels his own eternality in the act of being a temporal being. Now, this is a peculiar identity of opposites. The kind of thought here is illustrated in a statement when a rabbi is telling a story about a young man who is going home, and on the way he passes a, another rabbi friend of his. and. The house is in darkness and it's late at night. He taps on the door, and the rabbi inside says, "Who is it?" And he says, "It is I." The rabbi does not open the door, so he waits some time. Then he knocks again. "Who is it?" "It is I." Again, the rabbi does not open the door. He waits. "Who is it?" Oh, this time he gives his name. Then the rabbi shouts at him. You should have said so in the first place you have no right to say i only god can say i now he's talking about absoluteness and about the observation from reflexive self-awareness when you stand at the door in the dark and say i how do we know who it is we know this i is a consciousness but you are only legitimate to say i when you are referring to pure consciousness and not to a specific body. So standing outside in the dark and saying, I am here, conveys no information whatever. Because formation is not I, not consciousness. Formation is an object. And therefore no information is given when you say I. But if you see every zone to be absolute in itself, because it is the absolute sentient power at that point, which is activating itself. And looking from this centre to other centres, and then looking from it from this finite closed zone, looking from it to other zones, it is generating, by the fact of its mode of looking, a time process. It is seeing other circles as if they were serialised, when in fact they are not. Now, at the moment a being is reflectively aware, of awareness in himself and not identified with the form then he is identical with the absolute and it would be correct for him to say i but he would be referring to the absolute and he would not be referring to a form when then we look at this letter b we see that in fact the boundary of it can only be a superstition it cannot be valid in itself it does not separate this finite, closed zone, from other zones. It isn't as if we could finite it and take it out and leave a hole where it had been with nothing in it. We can't do this sort of thing. We can abstractly talk as if we could do it, but we cannot, in fact, do it. Neither can we conceive the possibility of doing it. It is merely an abstract intellectual exercise to pretend we can do it. But if we are duped by the exercise into thinking we have done it, we have fallen from the continuous nature of the Absolute into a conceptual level, the intellect is duped And it's this power of the intellect to dupe us by abstract thinking that is signified by the devil when he is said to be the prince of the powers of the air. It signifies intellect. Now, because this letter B, or the binding letter, can only be a superset in the Absolute because this finite cannot be valid on its own because it is surrounded by an infinity of such finites overlapping it, and also because it is a modality of the absolute continuum. Because of that, this letter B must be considered to be merely a function of the eternal. If we now compound A and B together and write them down, we have an old word, Father. Add means Father. You have it in the word Abbot, Abbe, and so on. It means Father, which is the peculiar name of the God who has created everything. And it's saying in this word, the Absolute, which is pure dynamism, A, has within itself produced being. Being is inside non-being. We often come up against this concept of non-being in modern philosophy. And if you're not used to the handling of the concept, you can get very pessimistic and think that non-being is a terrible thing. You may think it means annihilation. And you may think annihilation is a bad thing. But in fact, the non-being is simply the non-limited. When we do the letter B, we just circumscribe its own when we untie it and take the string away and throw it away, what remains is the Absolute, but this Absolute is not an annihilation. This Absolute is an Absolute Positive. It was the being that was Positive that was a Negative. <coughs> the Finite Being was negated of its Infinity in the act of being Positive as a Finite. Two negatives make Positive, so if we negate the negation of Finite Being, we get back the absolute positive from which it started. Now, both of these put together, the absolute infinite and the relatively bound within the infinite, by the infinite, constitutes the letter A and B and the word ab meaning father. If you reverse the reading into ba, this is a Hebrew word meaning in, within. And therefore, we can see that the AB contains within. Itself as a, a complete word, a symbol, all possible, whatever, the possible, those power abilities to close and to unclose, to include and exclude, to posit and to negate. All these are symbolized in Ab, and therefore when we say Ab of the Father, like Jesus in Gethsemane talking about his Father and doubling the word Abba. When he is saying this, he is talking about the absolute sentient power internal to which all closures are made. One of the closures being the finite physical body that was in Gethsemane at the time and that was being used as a center of reference in order to produce the dialogue. In order that other circles identified with themselves should receive this as a stimulus, towards breaking identification. But the purpose of breaking the identification is not to eliminate the zones of individuation. It is to eliminate slavery to them. Once we have broken away from them so that we are no longer identified mechanically with them, then we can deliberately re-identify and then break identification and re-identify. We can make and break, This is the keys of binding and loosing, When you go to bed at night, you break identification with your body. When you wake in the morning, you re-identify with the body. For ordinary daily living, this kind of make and breaking of identification is mechanical, and is not under the control of the resident intelligence in that body. But by certain exercises and clear thinking, it can become a possibility that a person can identify with his body and then let go of the identification, he can pass from the time-process identification into the eternal non-identification. But all the time you can see that when he is in the time-process, he's still only an eternal being with a superset placed upon himself by his own will to identify. And this will to identify individually is precisely the cause of all the finiting processes that breed opposition and conflict in the time process. Remove our identification with finites and conflict disappears. Hence all the work that is done to break down the concept of being. Now unfortunately, in the history of European thought, we have found a tremendous extrovert sense of thought Directed into the material world and identified with the material body, and identifying this and all affinity with the concept of value, we have generated a term, namely being, and this term being has come to be equivalent to absolute value. And consequently, you will find all modern books of philosophy are concerned with the problem of being and non-being, but they don't understand what being means. But if you read even the deepest thinkers of modern existentialist philosophy, you'll find they keep using the term being and non-being, and then apologizing for themselves in the next sentence, as if they were not sure where being and non-being overlap, if they do. And this is still failure to realize that elementary fact that we say, when we define, we define the limits of application of a term. We do not define things; they are already defined already. So that when we indicate the limits of application of the term "being," we say only that which can be circumscribed and which closes a finite zone shall be called a being. But whatever cannot be so closed must be called a non-being. We must negate this binding, this binding process, and in so doing, we posit back the absolute internal to which that bounding has appeared. So here we have the father out of the absolute and his first dwelling. The letter B here in the English booth means a house, <coughs> B-E-T-H in Hebrew Beth means a house. A is the absolute first, and B is the house produced inside him. Observe, he is not in the house house is in him. In him we live, move, and have our being and dwell. And consequently, the be is always within the absolute. The circle I draw is on the paper, but the amount of paper inside the circle isn't all the paper. There's paper beyond it. And that paper here, within the circle, is inside the paper outside the circle. So that every finite thing whatever is inside God, and God himself is inside nothing. Let us say the concept of inside-outside does not apply to action. <coughs> now if we come to consider what emerges after this, in the third letter, in the case of the English, we get C, and in the case of the Hebrew, or the Greek, we get a hard G. Let's see what this signifies. The letter C we normally pronounce, when followed by a back vowel like A-O-O-U, as a hard K, and it means closure. And the letter G, hard, gamma, or the Hebrew Gimel, means a closure and a complete blocking or solidifying of that zone. So it's just as if we were to say, let us do A for the Absolute, and then B is a circle, and then we shade the circle in and call that gamma. You see this gamma-up business that we find as an ordinary expression. To gamma up is to block up, to gamma. This RG and the M gamma means to lock up the substance and press it together very hard. Now this is the third stage. Now let's have a look what this means for the substance. Let's write in this particular mode, A, for absolute, and then B, for the binding process, and then G, for the solidification or substantialization of that which is bound. We have now got two worlds in a non-world. The absolute is not a world at all, because world implies order and division. World is word, or power ordering, plus L, which means link, or binding, or labelling to tie it together. So that when we say A equals absolute, B equals what is circumscribed, and gamma, or gimel, equals what is solid, we have said an absolute world, an ideal world, and a gross material. Now, the absolute world is that internal to which these other two worlds are. Let's slightly modify the diagram. A for the absolute. Now we'll do a circle for B. And then inside that circle we'll do another little circle and shade it black. Now let's have a look at what we've got. We've got a central solid particle, marked G. We've got a circumscribed zone, marked V and an infinite beyond the circumscribed, marked A. Imagine our gross physical body is this hard G, gamma. Our gross physical body is a gammed up zone. It's pressed in, it interferes with itself, it gets in its own way. You try to put your arm around yourself and get hold of your own elbow around the back of your body and you have difficulty with it because it's solid, and it won't let you do it. So this gamma duck body is a zone of interference that makes a large number of things very difficult. It produces discrete gross material particles that will not penetrate each other. But the zone of circumscription itself, which is not gamma duct, which is say B is the zone where form exists, that is circumscription, but it is not solidified, not gamma up. And this is a form world around a gross material. Now, in our own case, we know that this is somehow mixed up with air we breathe, and this helps to animate our body. (coughs) We can see that this breathing process is intimately linked to the peculiar qualities of the air that goes, goes into us and at the same time it somehow permeates the gross material into spaces of our body. and by this sphere of air going in and out in the breathing act, we are somehow animated and allowed to transcend the gross material level. Our gross material bodies will not penetrate each other but our ideal level, our form level, will. You're still something deparable one from another but it can overlap. This means to say that we can actually exchange ideas and cause our ideas to penetrate into each other in a way that our gross physical bodies will not. So we can look at somebody's gross body and then somebody else's gross body. One may be tall, one may be short, one may be fat, one may be thin. We can close our eyes and put these bodies together and make them overlap and then press them together and get an average body out of these. And with the aid of this average body, we can make certain statistical predictions. This we do because there is a form world which is not gammed up. And apart from this form world which is not gammed up, we have the absolute in which these other two worlds are themselves. And this absolute is generating form, in one zone and then gambling it up, and the same absolute is making another form in another zone and gambling it up. Now, this is very strange, because somehow this absolute, which is not plural, not dual, is producing zones within itself, which are forms, and then it is gambling up by pressing into their centers, the individual gross bodies, within this non-dual absolute. We know actually how he does it, as when we draw our diagram of the overlapping circles which represent simply the impulses of the paper when it waves. This absolute which is non-dual, when it vibrates throughout itself, produces in its vibrations zones which of themselves, when viewed, from any given point of view, within a circle, are always seen to be finite. And yet they overlap. So our realm of ideas can overlap. But in the centre of each one, there is a gamma up zone, the gross material body. Those like a of Which, in fact, is the discrete part of the relation. So this absolute, then, can somehow be seen as creating individuation zones round, each individuated form. So each man has his own mind as well as his own body, but the minds are overlapping. The absolute, which is non-plural, non-dual, is producing this plurality of beings and this opposition within itself by inspiring zones within itself. And it is doing this and creating and individuating them, although itself is not individuated. When we look at this, then, we could see three zones, a gross material body, an individual form which is precipitating that body, and round it the absolute bringing that individual form to exist. That makes three levels apart from the absolute. Well, we're making a special case of the absolute producing form B Gambling up G. <clears throat> now, if we said when a man is completely identified with his gross material body, he is said to be awake in the world of matter. But when he's awake in the world of matter, focused on a material particle, he is asleep to the causal level of his being. Here is the body, gross body. Subtle body or form body, causal body round it. Causal, subtle, gross. Those three concentric spheres. When you are awake and focused on your gross material body, the fact that you are focused on that body and identified with its processes means that you are asleep to the infinity of other modes of being that are beyond. Particular one on which you're focusing.
1: So it is said those
0: beings walking about believing they are awake in the material world are really asleep. And what for them constitutes dream and deep sleep are really modes of serial presentation in the dream process and simultaneous awareness at the causal level of all that appears in the time process, in the gross world, as separated serial. So we have a causal here, which simultaneously presents all the form that is appearing in the dream and in thought processes serially, and then precipitating gross material bodies, chemical precipitates, which are formed by the form body, which is made by the causal body. And all these three are in the absolute. The absolute is called the, beyond uh, the, beyond the fourth, the mysterious fourth beyond the three you know. That. Now, if we turn these upside down, we can see a very peculiar thing about it. If we place the gross material body on the belly level, where you put your food, then we have to place the chest level. In the form body and then the causal body in the head whereas if we said let us imagine another man upside down to this man and he has his belly in the causal world then his feeling still in the form subtle zone and then his head in the gross material world we would see a man upside down to the first one and these are the two ways we can live we can either put our head Part into the gross material world and say, This is my ruler, namely matter, in which case the head responds to mechanical physical stimuli, or we can turn our head upside down and say, My real head is my will. Now, the man who has his head in the material world is actually having his belly in the causal world. It is the impulses of the belly of the materialistically orientated man that make him move. Whereas in the man who is not materialistically orientated, he has his belly in the gross material world, that is say he exists as a material being, but his control of the head is in the causal world. And therefore it says these two are upside down one to the other, and the ways of God and of man are opposite ways man cannot comprehend, as I identify with the finite, what God is up to, because God keeps his head at the causal level. Now the fourth state of the absolute, in terms of which the causal and subtle and gross are precipitated, we must remember, like the paper underneath the drawing, is running underneath all of these, and it's the continuity principle behind the three, that which links them all together. So we see here, in dealing with the first three letters of the alphabet, that we have already a quite complicated series of concepts. We find this same thing turned round. We can read them just in breaker, or in the ordinary way that we do in English, from left to right, or right to left. If we take this same triad of letters, and read them the opposite way round, the way we have done. From B-A-G we get G-A-B, GAB. Now everybody knows what the gift of the GAB is, and what the angel Gabriel is. Gabriel is the GAB of God, and this GAB is the same thing as being able to obscure something by talking about it. If we think of the time process as a mode of God speaking, but speaking in such a way that the serial presentation obscures, by the very fact of serializing, the simultaneity of the fact, so that you miss the simultaneity and the relation by focusing on the serial, you are put in the bag by the gift of the gap. Now, if we take it out of the English, letter C, which is taken as a closure Without bothering to stress specifically, because the English are not concerned with it, the merely gross aspects of it, it gives rise to the word cab and back. This back, of course, is the same thing as the bakulam, the stick, or run of office. And the cab is the great secret, the same one as the cabinet. You know the kind of decisions that go on in the cabinet or its equivalent in any country. This cab means secret. Same cabin camelot. It's the same cabin cabal. The same cabin caballo. The, the horse. The hierarchical symbol. And therefore, we see in a simple, threefold literal structure a highly complex series of ideas, which tell us that there is a great secret or cab to do with the gift of the gab inside the letters which signify God, the Absolute, begat for himself a son and then precipitated the world. So we have immediately the letter B standing for the Logos as a rational order. The Absolute going beyond this order is the Father, but giving itself into the order and then internal to this cosmic order, this Logos, the gross material world is precipitated. So we can then imagine a gross material particle, a small one, like an electron, or the biggest one we can conceive, the whole of the visible universe seen through the astronomers' telescopes, All the matter that we can see is a great sphere. Viewed from a proper distance, it would look like a single point. Around it there would be seen a field with a limiting factor around it, and this would correspond to the subtle form of it, and therefore the cosmic love us. And then beyond this is the infinite, the absolute itself. If we were doing a mantra yoga exercise, we would start by observing the being and to say the limitations of our own body. We would then feel the body by moving it a bit to get the sense of the mass inertia of it and meditate on what it means to be gammered up, to be blocked, to be solid, to be opaque to be ignorant. All the things symbolize by being impenetrable. And then to meditate round this block of impenetrability and see the space round it to be that which has precipitated this. And then just as we have focused on the gross material body, so we then move out of it because we have made a focal center, we keep it in the center, but we move out from it, and we discover our sphere of ideas, and then we keep moving out further still until we come to the end of our ideas, that's the end of the subtle world. Not in the serial sense, but simply has a sphere of form, and then we leap out of this, and it can only be done by leap, because further serialization is still inside the sphere. We leap outside the sphere, straight into the absolute. But this absolute is the causal level of our being and is our own will. When we become aware of this in the exercise, starting with the gross body, then going to the idea body, then going beyond the idea body, simply to feel that one is a being power initiating these other two spheres within itself. This confers what we call initiative, that is, freedom from reactivity the power to stand perfectly still, and then without waiting for a stimulus to come, starting a process immediately, and in this immediate start from nothing, breeding a pure or absolute action. Thank you for listening to the Eugene Halliday Podcast. Please subscribe to receive notifications of future episodes.